0: Love, talk, radio. Welcome today, the 18th of September, 2019. This is David Williams. This is the first episode of what I'm calling Torak Radio. We'll be doing a weekly Wednesday podcast here into the foreseeable future from under the tree of peace. Santa Barbara Tree of Peace, located at UCSC, University of California, Santa Barbara, just to the northwest of the landmark Stork Tower. This tree was planted in May 16, 1985, as a symbol of the message of peace, represented by the great law of peace. This is a story that Jake Swamp, the Mohawk chief, told, told us on the fifth anniversary of the planting In January 1990, when we had a week of events with uh, Hopi interpreter Thomas Banyaka and Jake Swamp the whole week and uh, various community leaders, Chumash elders taking part, the 20-hour videos were taken by Todd Swan of that week of events. And there's a two-hour edit of it on YouTube called the Rainbow Uprising of Consciousness Campaign. This idea was uh, the uprise consciousness to a higher level in which we can see the solutions to the problems of today that we can't see with our present level of thinking. This is a kind of a takeoff on Einstein's quote uh, to that effect, but also it was inspired by the visit of the Palestinian Center for Nonviolence to Santa Barbara when he gave a talk at the Fellowship of Reconciliation meeting with Gene Newsom Hoffman, and he was explaining at the time, this was now 1989, that uh, he was trying to promote the teachings of Mahatma Gandhi and nonviolence, uh, civil disobedience, in order for the Palestinian people to, you know, get some relief from what was going on there and the problems with the Israeli uh, oppression and so forth. And here he had this Palestinian Center for Nonviolence. He was, he was explaining to the Fellowship of Reconciliation which is an international group of basically a spinoff of the Quakers, which is a, all about peace. And he was explaining to them that he was having trouble um, getting the people, the Palestinian people, to you know, go along with the uh, nonviolence because they felt so oppressed. And, and uh, the, the most that he could do was uh, convince them to limit their resistance to throwing rocks. So that he had moved the line a little bit over from uh, defining what nonviolence is. And um, he was explaining in English, uh, they always hear about the Palestinian uprising. And uh, he explained that the term is, it's not properly translated as uprising in the sense of like a <laughs> Indian uprising and the cowboys and all that kind of thing. But it, the word intifada in Arabic It's a spiritual dimension. It means an uprising of consciousness to a higher level for which you can see the solutions to the problems of today. So it's a spiritual self-purification practice to purify the mind, to elevate the thinking. And so that's where the idea of the, the meaning of this word, rainbow uprising, came from. It's a spiritual practice to uprise our consciousness a higher level from which we can see the solutions to the problems of today that we can't see from our current level of thinking. So that uh, Rainbow Uprising of Consciousness campaign was initiated in 1990 in January. On the uh, occasion, the main reason for the focus was the January 9th, uh, fifth anniversary of the demise of Mahatma Gandhi, the man he called his teacher, his guruji, Nichidatsu Fujii. And uh, Guruji passed away. We called him Guruji because Gandhi did. And uh, Guruji passed away at the age of 100 years old on January 9th in uh, 1985. Or 19, yeah. So in 1990, uh, I created the week of events around that date. And it was just a few months before the year anniversary of the planting of this tree of peace. Um, which was, uh, as I say, on May 16th, 1985, which I remember because it was the day before my 40th birthday, and my father, who I'm named after, David Crockett Williams, I'm junior, and he was named after his grandfather with the same name, so I'm actually the third, so it's not my fault, but my name is David Crockett Williams. But anyway, my father passed away on my 40th birthday, the day after this tree of peace was planted. So that's why I remember the date clearly, and uh, during that week of events, uh, was the welcoming by the Chumash uh, Choice Lowe, the medicine practitioner, Thomas Banyaka's arrival, Jake Swamp, had already come earlier, and uh, at the Los Angeles Napunza Myohoji Temple, uh, founded by Nichi Datsu, um, we had a welcoming for Jake Swamp, and he talked a little bit about Guruji that's on the video, too. And then um, there was a panel discussion during that week at the Isla Vista Theater, Um, with, uh, you know, the Hiroshima A-bomb survivor that brought the Hiroshima flame that we installed on the Eternal Flame Monument here during that course of the the final ceremony of that uh, series of events that week in January 1990. It started with the ceremony here at the Tree of Peace when Jake Swamp explained to us the message of the peacemaker And the message, that the the history of the Tree of Peace, the original planted about a thousand years ago, um, that ended warfare and violence, uh, bitter warfare and violence for centuries among the five tribes in the area, brought them together into a peaceful confederacy, the Haudenosaunee they call themselves, the people of the Longhouse. They're known mostly as the Iroquois by the French name. But their system of government of the people, by the people, for the people, based on unanimous consent, And councils. Now, how do you do that? But they have a process that uh, I learned about last year from uh, Seneca Elder Big Tree, Robert Smith, um, in our Global Peace Councils in Greenbelt Park remotely. He, over the phone, explained to us how this council process works. I may not have time to go into it today, but it's a very beautiful uh, way that they're able to get everybody's opinion heard and actually come to unanimous agreement. by the end of the council sessions, So that process was also brought by the man they call the peacemaker. And uh, Jake Swamp told us that there's, you know, he has different names and different books that are put down, but you're not supposed to ever say his name. And you're only supposed to refer to him as the peacemaker. And why is because the, according to the Mohawk teaching, they have a prophecy that somebody in the future people in the right time, the, those that believe will go into the forest and they will call his real name and peacemaker will appear to them again in physical form to give a message. So this, uh, this prophecy, this teaching is diluted by all the people that write out this name in books and talk about it. Uh, DQ university in California to change its name to that because they used the, the peacemakers name in the name, in the name of the university. But anyway, um, So, what happened was the peacemaker came and uh, went to the first of the five tribes, the worst, the Mohawk. Their name is not, their own language isn't Mohawk, it's something else. But they were called Mohawk, which means cannibal because they were. And uh, he went to the worst first, and they wanted to give them the message of peace, and they said, We have to pass a test. And uh, so they gave him a rigorous test, and he passed it, and they listened. And then without any to-do, just hearing it, they accepted it. And then they helped him, and Hiawatha, who was his spokesman, who gets some credit for this, the peacemaker, according to Jake Swamp, had a double row of teeth, so he had a speech impediment, and Hiawatha was his spokesman. So together, they brought the, the message from the, uh, the, with the Mohawk support to the rest of the five tribes, united them all together. They lit a council fire, which has been burning constantly for a 1,000 years or however long it's been since then, um, the central council fire of the Haudenosaunee, somewhere in the New York area, I think. So this teaching of the great law of peace is embodied in the, the wampum belt of the great law of peace. You've probably seen it, the purple and white little snail shell beads that comprise this pattern uh, depicting the great law of peace. And the tree of peace itself is a symbol of the great law of peace. Now, this great law of peace, um, you know, to my view as a scientist uh, involved in the chemical physics of consciousness, this is the same, uh, by a different name, it's the same thing that Thomas Banyaka, the Hopi interpreter, always referred to as the law of nature. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an inviolably sovereign law. It's like gravity. You know, you may not understand gravity, but if you don't watch out for it, you're going to get hurt kind of thing. So... You know, the, Banyaka spoke to the United Nations the, with the other indigenous leaders the first time in December of 1992, uh, December 10th. And uh, he explained to them that, you know, the United Nations is off track. And just like all the governments in the world, you're making up laws and trying to enforce them on the people by violence. Instead of paying attention to the existence and the reality of this law of nature, this great law of peace and by respecting it and and, uh, counseling in a peaceful frame of mind that you attain through sacred practice and prayer before meetings, then you can tune in to what the, the great law of peace is all about and how it impacts decisions and how it impacts us in the world. And Banyaka explained to the UN then that if they didn't change their way, if the governments and the people of the world didn't change their way and start respecting this great law of peace, this law of nature, Then the mind of man is so in tune with, of humankind, is so in tune with the natural order that the mind of the humans being out of harmony with the natural order, the natural law, the law of nature, the great law of peace, was actually responsible for many increasing natural disasters. There's going to be more storms, there's going to be more fires, more lightning. Everything that we've seen come through, which they... (laughs) That People think it is the Hopi prophecy, but, uh, you know, Thomas Banyaka alone coined the the term Hopi prophecy to try to bring out the message of what more properly into English is called the Hopi life plan. I don't know what it's called in the Hopi language, but this is explained to me in three meetings in depth for over an hour at a time repetitively by Thomas Banyaka Jr., that uh, in 2016, that this is, it's not properly correct to think of this as the Hopi prophecy. It's, it's a reflection of the Hopi life plan teaching that's labeled Hopi prophecy. So anyway, Banyaka delivered this message to the United Nations about, you know, consequence of the Hopi life plan, which he feels is embodied, the steel down, the essence of it is in his document called the Hopi Declaration of Peace. That's online in many places if you just search for Hopi Declaration of Peace, you'll find it. I got it first on May fifth nineteen seventy six and blew my mind. I went up to the Paradise campground here here, santa barbara spent the day i am sure I read it over carefully a hundred times amazing document so anyway, he's talking to the he's talking to the gen- the general Assembly convenes in the morning, right, and then the chairman announces, the president announces, okay, we're going to take a break. And then after that, the indigenous leaders, 82 of them have come from around the world to speak. And it's because next year is going to be the United Nations Year of Indigenous People. And uh, so we gathered them to a recess, and then nobody came back. Maybe one or two, I don't know. But uh, basically, they spoke to an empty room, such was the lack of understanding and respect of the indigenous people at the time, which has grown But, uh, you know, a dozen or so of the representatives spoke, and um, Banyaka among them. And uh, while they talked, the rainstorm started brewing outside. And as Banyaka explained, uh, more storms are coming if you don't pay attention. As if nature is punctuating his words, the storm grew and grew. And by lunchtime, Yamato, who was there, explained that they look out the window over the Hudson River at lunchtime, and the saw a boat capsizing in the waves the rain storm was so big then it kept up overnight and then the next morning the everybody got together these 82 indigenous leaders from around the world ready to go home and they were Bianca called them into a circle to make a prayer before you know parting after their mission had been accomplished he felt his life mission was fulfilled with that that his instructions in 1948 to open the door to the House of Micah, which John Boyd talks about in uh, part of the 35-minute talk in that Rainbow Uprising of Consciousness campaign from 1990, what this Hopi prophecy about the House of Micah is, Micah being that mineral that looks like glass, and how they discovered what it was. John Boyd talks about that in a video. But, uh, so he was able to do this. Uh, Yaka died February 6, 1999, satisfied his his life mission assigned by his elders in 1948 was fulfilled. And uh, so anyway, the next morning, December 11, 1992, there's in this circle, in this room in the U.N., and then uh, all of a sudden the rain is so heavy that it floods the basement and shorts everything out and all the lights go out in the United Nations. And then the guard comes in and says, Yamato told me all this story. The guard comes in and says, oh, you have to leave the lights are out. And they go, well, we're not afraid of the dark. So they all light up their big lighters and continue the ceremony around the circle. By the time they finished, the lights went back on, the rain had stopped. Now, people can say that's a coincidence. People who understand what coincidence is, that it's a is as Jose Munoz calls it, synchronicity as Jung called it that the the law of nature the great law of peace doesn't operate in terms of like karma uh, cause and effect in the Buddhist tradition Hindu tradition this great law of peace this law of nature is called dharma and it has a special case of karma which is the one that operates cause and effect in linear time but the law of nature the great law of peace The Dharma doesn't operate like that. It operates asynchronously, beyond time. So it's it's reflected. You can observe its action, and it's reflected in coincidences like that one. And people who understand what I'm saying understand what I'm saying, and have experienced it in their own life. Uh, Kimberly Ruff, one of the Participants in our peace ceremony here at the March 11th, 2016, when we dedicated the Global Peace Poll um, as a symbol of the message of peace, the symbol of the great law of peace, with its six symbols uh, from different cultures representing this message. Uh, Kimberly reports all the time on her Facebook all the coincidences that happened in her life, just in Jose Munoz, too. (laughs) Just this morning, he posted a about a bus ticket that had the route number 1444 on it. And that reflects back to his mission from the year 1444, when in Guatemala, all the tribes gathered to get their instructions and warnings um, for the coming, you know, what they knew was coming with Columbus and everything. And uh, so at that gathering in 1444, uh, on June 21st, 1444 There was a message delivered By a woman they call the Mayan Jade Princess And She delivered this message That was reflected on a scroll That When I first met Jose a few years Ago in Santa Barbara He had this rubbing, it looked like a Xerox copy An 8 foot long rubbing A color copy of a rubbing from some Stone mar- carving somewhere All kinds of those Mayan glyphs on it And he explained this the first time in public they're going to release this message about the jade princess and it was because the, this crystal skull they had there called Kamachimi all of a sudden a, a red spot is, appeared inside of it and they thought it was a spot of blood and because it, it appeared and was growing his elders told him it was the time to release this message about the jade princess called it, it could be called the jade princess prophecy but what it was is she spoke At this gathering on June 21st, 1444, and I'm sure there's a long message behind it, but the part he released is she was transmitting information back from the year 2024 on Earth. From 2024, the view of the world then was transmitted back in time to this June 21st, 1444 delivery, and the message that we got was that world peace begins in the year 2021. So Jose Munoz, the Mayan daykeeper that keeps track of 23 different Mayan calendars every day um, and the teaching on one important one called the Sixth Sixth Sun Sacred Calendar, um, that's for the period of time that began on December 21st, the year uh, 2012, when everybody, Jose Arguegas had everybody thinking some terrible thing might happen, but it was really just the beginning the end of one year cycle and the beginning of another 26,000-year cycle is depicted by this Sixth Sun sacred calendar. The previous uh, calendar of the previous 26,000 years had 20 archetype symbols, and the new Sixth Sun calendar has 25 archetype symbols. And uh, Jose has been uh, making these uh, cal- demonstration uh, exhibits of these symbols in uh, what he calls the calendar dreamcatcher, the different styles, but there's like flags uh, or different representations, sometimes flags, sometimes a circular wheel, with these different twenty-five glyphs, five new ones for this epic started uh, December twenty first, twenty twelve. Epic being a EPOC being a radical change in a period of time, a new era kind of thing. So um he's been building these Mayan calendar dream catchers, um, and 144 of them build, towards his ceremony already set up for December 21st, 2021, to mark the beginning of world peace, according to the message of the Jade Princess delivered June 21st, the year 1444. So all that, <laughs> what I just explained, is uh, popped out in the coincidence of his post in the middle of the night that I saw this morning on his Facebook page showing his bus ticket for him and his daughter uh, that had them on the bus number 1444. And then uh, he talks about it in terms of time traveling. And uh, so I, I said, well, is that easy? Just get a bus ticket? That's all you need to time travel. But anyway, um, back to the story of the Tree of Peace and um Okay, so I've covered twenty one minutes of this hour what <laughs> I intended to do, and what I probably should do before I digress any longer. Um, first, I want to say a couple of words about the uh, eternal flame on campus, and then I'm going to go into um, the scheduling of this uh, and I the many, many labels uh, this is the 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 next schedule for the Rainbow Uprising campaign. It's the schedule for the Gandhi 150, 150th birthday anniversary of Mahatma Gandhi. It's the schedule for the establishment of the American Peace Movement. Uh, many different labels, but the bottom line is <laughs> there's upcoming events and target dates and things. I can't tell what anybody else is going to do, but I can tell what I'm going to do. And uh, I'm here right now on schedule and um, I've been practicing 40 years to do peace activities on schedule, and so far it's working today. Um, so the Peace Flame on campus was um, – de- the monument was dedicated by the class of 1969, the graduating class, UCSB. Well, I, that's the year I graduated Cal State Northridge with a degree in chemistry. I actually finished my chemistry requirements two years earlier. I should have graduated in '67 but I postponed taking a half a unit of P.E. for two years uh, so I could keep my draft deferment. And then I got married, and then a baby, and other things that kept me out of the war. Uh, following my, the best advice my dad ever gave me was to not go in the military. And anyway, I got my degree in 1969, same year as this class dedicated to this peace flame. So when I encountered it in 1983, walking onto campus, Um, During the time I was uh, uh, doing promotions, uh, having taken on the task of producing the Isla Vista Fall Festival that year for the uh, fall of 1983, when we had our office in the building, that's now the Isla Vista Park and Recreation Building, which used to be a gas station and uh, now it's all fancy stick up. You never know it was a gas station, but it's the classic example of repurposing fossil fuel uh, places. Uh, We'd kill the Black Snake, and we can turn all the gas stations into beautiful buildings like the Olivet Park and Recreation District Office. But at the time, in late 1983, it was still, the big part of it was still the bay, uh, auto, you know, repair bay, empty, and then the side room where the The office of the the clerk of the board is now Was a little kind of a meeting room And uh, had a potbelly stove in there And we used to sit in there at night Half a dozen of us and burn the fire And brainstorm and plan how to make a good fall festival In that context I walked on campus And I saw this eternal flame monument And and there was no flame So I thought well that's weird And I read the plaques There's a nice quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. President Kennedy and Robert Kennedy—beautiful quotes from them—and uh, you know the history of, uh, you know, how it was dedicated. And I puzzled about it and wondered why it was turned off, and uh, I thought it should be turned on. And uh, made some inquiries and found out it was because uh, shortly after it was put on in 1969, there was the energy crisis in 1970, and as a symbolic gesture to save energy, they turned the flame off. Well, I, that didn't make any sense to me, so I started a campaign, the revival campaign, to get it relit. And that took form over many years. Uh, you know, first Chancellor Huttenbach had a ceremony with the Black Student Union and others, and the, they relit it. And the the wind kept blowing it out, so they turned it off again. And then uh, next, uh, the well, the first time I really got involved with it was, was – still unlit, that's why I say uh, uh, Victor Scott Eagle Lopez came out one time to make a prayer with me and Winona Rubio who was our uh, one of our coordinators on the Global Peace Walk 95 to get it relit And um, so when the city of Santa Barbara declared a sister city relationship with the city of Yalta in the Soviet Union in 1989 thereabouts uh, the mayor of Yalta was coming to visit so I proposed Santa Barbara and the mayor of Yalta to to jointly relight this peace flame in a ceremony with the chancellor and so that happened and then it was relit uh, by them in a ceremony and then uh, they put an an electric zapper on it uh, to keep the flame going so every time the wind would blow it out a few seconds later it would zap and light it up again well you know that didn't seem quite the best way so I kept Appealing to the existing chancellors to upgrade it. And then um, in 1990, they brought the Hiroshima Peace Flame from Japan. And so uh, it was jiffied up again, and uh, we had our week of events, and then they installed the Hiroshima Peace Flame on it. And then that flame was carried in a lantern across country. The Thomas Banyaka did a prayer at the beginning and was able to be at the end. Of the walk at the United Nations And the president of the General Assembly Came out with his aide With his briefcase handcuffed to his wrist And the, the president of the General Assembly Gave a talk to the walkers who carry the Hiroshima Peace Flame across country And then Binyaka gave a talk to the walkers And uh, this flame is on this monument here at UCSB The only place in the United States Where it exists, an outdoor monument Well, it's symbolic because, of course, since then, during the construction, and this and that, it was turned off again. And so one day I came out with the Chumash elder, Art Cisneros, and uh, Maya Shaw Gill, who does the water ceremonies here in town. Uh, and uh, Marshall Jack, the other water ceremony expert, the Paiute Medicine, then uh, came out to do a prayer, to, the flame is out. No, no. Oh my goodness Then I have to appeal to Chancellor Yang Once again So the last time I was there A few days ago it looks perfect There's a, They turned up the gas So it's a bigger flame There's no more electric zapper I guess they figured out that if They turned the flame up enough Even though it blackens the monument That it keeps going So symbolically the, All these flames The American Soviet peace flame The Hiroshima peace flame all still burn And everywhere in the world where a flame burns. Symbolically, that prayer is all there. But the next time, uh, to the Iroquois people, the Haudenosaunee people some years back, took a light from that sacred council fire that's been going for a thousand years. And they ran that light in a, in a fixture all the way across the United States to the Chumash people. And the Chumash have a distinct... Um, unique role as they all do in the culture of the indigenous peoples of this continent, because they're the keepers of the Western gate. This is what they call the point conception area in California, where there's that kind of elbow in in the shape of California where the Northern currents, the cold currents come down from the North. And then the warm currents from the South come up and they meet at point conception, which is a very turbulent sea. So they were wanting to build an LNG terminal, a liquefied gas terminal out there in 1978. In the Chumash people who we thought were extinct came out of the woodwork, established a spiritual camp. Other people like Archie Fire, Lame Deer, Lakota, Minikanju, Medicine Man came out, and many people came to the community to support and they stopped that LNG terminal. Well, that was to protect the Point Conception, their sacred land, because that's where they believe that the spirits enter and leave the bodies of the people when, they, when they're when they born and when they die. So the protecting the Point Conception and uh, its sacredness uh, has been uppermost, and that action in 78 galvanized the community, the environmental community behind the Chumash people who have since become very, very prominent in town. The different bands are not so much united. The Kenny and his band has a casino, and, and the big cars and all that, and the uh, the coastal band, not so much, and then there's there's different bands up and down the, this area of california and uh so but they're not all united and uh but what happened was they brought this here this uh howdy sound sacred fire light from the council fire, and they ran it out and it's been burning ever since in a fixture up in the Sanionesnez reservation. I understand the the leader's house or somewhere outside there. And it's been burning there for now for some years. So my next uh, proposal, in the line of all these ceremonies, is someday um, to have an event where that a light from that flame is run down to Santa Barbara to this university. And when that eternal flame monument is finally foolproof, <laughs> not flameproof, but windproof, then the so we can be really assured that it won't go out then to have a ceremony to install that flame on this monument. And uh, I've proposed that to happen on October 2nd. And now I'll go into the schedule because that brings up the reason why I'm here is that October 2nd this year is uh, not only Gandhi's birthday, Mahatma Gandhi's birthday, which we usually observe every year, but this year it's his 150th birthday. So gives more... You know, it gives 150 times the energy to remember it as it does every other year, at least in my mind. So his daughter Teresa Gandhi has a, a site, uh, Gandhi 150 or 150 Gandhi. Sorry, 150 Gandhi, and and then uh, I've been promoting the hashtag Gandhi 150, and uh, I think they changed after I communicate with her. I think they changed the name. Uh, not the URL, but the name of the Facebook page to Gandhi 150, you can find. Um, But anyway, that's being promoted all around the world for people October 2nd. Whatever you do, remember Mahatma Gandhi on his birthday, 150th birthday, and his teaching of not only teaching of nonviolence, but the first ever historical example of nonviolent spiritual political revolution that overthrew the most powerful military force in the world at the time without firing a shot by spiritual practice. This is what we can remember on October 2nd and before then and after then and take inspiration from and example from. And How do we apply that principle in the United States, all around the world? How do we apply spiritual practice bring into the minds of the people that run the governments and the people of the country that support the people that run the governments, how do we bring the awareness of this law of nature, this great law of peace, this Dharma into the minds of the people so that they realize that that it works like gravity. If you don't pay attention, you're gonna get hit in the head. You're gonna you know, your life's gonna be miserable instead of joyous and peaceful and happy. How do we get that Understanding into the minds of the people, to uprise the consciousness, to correct the consciousness, to correct the minds of the people, to correct the mind of science, which is my area of interest, because it's confused by Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which all quantum physics, everything called quantum this and that, is all based on Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which has been extrapolated beyond its reasonable application realm to. to all scientists accept that the truth is not an absolute thing. They accept that the truth is only, something is only probably true. Higher and higher probabilities that something is true is all science these days will will get. And that's not Einstein's view. Einstein's quote is that God doesn't play dice with the universe. This means the whole notion of probabilistic blah, blah, blah science is uh, nonsense That if you don't focus on the Have religious faith as a scientist In the absolute nature of truth Then everything is all Mixed up and that's why there's So many problems in the science application For terrible things And why they think they're observing Things that they're actually creating with their Mind because they don't know it Because their mind is the mind and Human mind is so powerful Applied to this filter this nonsense Of probabilistic stuff, they're, they're, you know, new particle this and blah, 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 they think they're observing it, they're creating it with their mind just like Sai Baba creates, uh, Satya Sai Baba created material objects through the mind out of nothing, materialized sacred ash, materialized rings you know, all kinds of stuff that I personally, personally witnessed as a, a scientific observer six inches, even six inches in front of my face in September of 1995 in India so these so called paranormal phenomena uh, you know that many many people observe, Brian O'Leary writes about it in some of his books Uh, one guy in Brazil who, who held out his hand and he would this nectar kind of stuff would drip off of it into a jar and you could taste it materialization of matter from nowhere or from what science now thinks they call the zero point energy field this field of consciousness. In my work of the unified field theory, the Tetron Natural Unified Field Theory, talks about the human mind's consciousness orientation function of light as an overlooked property of the nature of light, C and E equals MC squared. And the unified field, Einstein's vision of describing this natural law, this law of nature, that works 100% of the time Everywhere all the time With 100% certainty This principle of Torah in Judaism The law that even God Has to follow in the world And cannot contradict That the books and the scriptures called Torah Are all trying to describe to the people To get them to understand Einstein thought Well this law, this law of nature Should be able to be described In a simple set of equations And uh, And he called that idea unified field theory, those equations. Well, in my view, the field is is consciousness, the field of consciousness. And that's what what the human mind manifests, our reality. Each reality, each person observes a reality relative to themselves, a relative through their relative identity. And um, how all the minds overlap, and manifest the world that we see well that's that's the study That's the study but uh, you know what hasn't been done in science is to control experiments for variations in the minds of each individual or the personalities of each individual which uh, grapho analysis is one tool you can depict you go to igas like sam dot com you'll find the American system of handwriting analysis that defines that qualifies and quantifies human personality by variations in the strokes and handwriting. This is like a a lie detector. It's like a polygraph of who a person is. Uh, I've been experimenting with this, studying it since my mom, when I was a teenager, got her certification. And I studied it deeply uh, starting in 1972 and have, Observed how it works over a period of time It's not perfect And there's a lot of variations And it gets me in trouble Sometimes dealing with people about it But nevertheless There are ways to objectively Qualify and quantify The differences in personalities The differences in the minds of the observers And minds of the observers Are what's responsible For their what they see In their reality What they observe If they're happy, if they're joyous if they're bummed out, if they're sad, it's all because of how their mind works. And so we get to the bottom of this, and uh, we can fix everything. Well, um, okay, enough of that. Um, I'm I'm going to go on here now, as you have heard on, for almost 40 minutes. That's two-thirds of this hour. And so I'll probably think of sidetracks on the way, but I, I want to discuss um, – once, once I, I started planning, uh, well, first of all, I've been on vacation. I went all year last year. I, uh, uh, I revived the 1986 project of my teacher, Masao Napashi, um, and uh, this was called the Great Spirit Relay. And it was called the Great Spirit Relay for a number of reasons. He invented the name called the Great Spirit All My Relations Relay Marathon Walk and Caravan. This is after our, our experience together since I met him in 1976 with different peace walks following Fuji Guruji's teaching and chanting and beating the drum of the Yoho Myoho Renge Kyo to bring out the awareness of this natural law, this law of nature, the Dharma in the minds of the people. According to their prophecy, uh, Buddha's prophecy over 2,500 years, 500-year five, periods, where the last one is the age of the decline of the law. People don't pay attention to this law. And now the new period is uh, the awareness of the truth of the law. And the transition, uh, Guruji felt was marked by the atomic bombings dropped on Hiroshima on his 60th birthday, August 6th. So now we're entering the age of the revival of the law, so to speak, of the consciousness of the, of the natural law. But the uh, Tossie came up with this concept, and we, we, at that time we were collaborating with uh, Archie Fire Lane Deer. We had just previously worked with him on uh, trying to do a walk to the Buffalo Calf Pipe opening. He said it happened every 100 years in South Dakota, but uh, that had to be canceled after the great peace march. People ended their walk in Washington, D.C., and... Archie's uncle said uh, they saw the result of that, and they didn't want those kind of people coming to South Dakota, so they canceled the walk to the Buffalo Calf Pipe from Santa Barbara, uh, the once-every-hundred-year opening that he said was happening. And instead, uh, months later, we put together this Great Spirit Relay project. And then Victor Scott Eagle Lopez, who was intended to go all the way across country and do all these wonderful things, but no resources, a handful of people, half a dozen Bob Hansen, the homeless advocate at the time, donated a rickety truck, pickup truck, and they all piled into it and hit it off and made it to Big Mountain and back. And by the grace of God. But uh, I was organized that, uh, but I didn't go on the trip. Uh, and then, uh, But they were sent off with an elaborate ceremony near the Dolphin Fountain by Grandfather Sky Eagle. The, the sage and the feathers, uh, everybody blessed uh, before they sent it off. And so this never used it again, this uh, 1986 project till last year in the March 11th, 2018 um, we did a ceremony here at the tree of peace with uh, Jose Munoz and the arts Cisneros, the Chumash elder to um, dedicate a new style peace pole. Now the peace pole comes from a 2200 year old tradition in india and uh, this is during the, this is another example like the or the iroquois setup where or history where warring nations bitter warfare for centuries stopped united and created a peaceful confederacy that lasted a long time until the European invasion disturbed it grew to, according to Banyaka, grew to over a hundred nations throughout the Eastern U.S. and Canada, all harmoniously living in peace, universal uh, respect, unanimous consent government that our founding fathers looked at and tried to pattern it something after it, but they left out the law of peace. They left out unanimous consent in favor of majority rule. And they left out that the, the women's role um, the men they saw were the leaders of the Iroquois, but they didn't pay attention to the fact that the, each of the men were picked by a council of women, and that the women's council representative is the one who judges all the men's councils when they come to their unanimous consent on any issue. Then they look to the woman. And if she agrees, judges it just, then it's implemented. If not, they have to go around and circle again. Keep coming up with a, a, a decision that satisfies the representative of the Women's Council. The U.S. people left that out. And they also left out or didn't understand the, the concept of wampum. This is a, like the wampum belt, and Jake Swamps showed us in that video. You can see it, Rainbow Uprising video on YouTube. A single wampum is one of these white, uh, purple or white. Tiny snails, and when they die, they're made into beads, the shells, and they string them on wild hemp. And he showed us one wampum, he showed John Voigt, and that's depicted on the video. Well, they weave these into different patterns. There's a two row wampum, there's this, that, and the other kind of teachings that are represented by the patterns. But it's like a, the, the Europeans saw this and they saw that these beaded items were treasured highly. But they couldn't get it, and the the only thing they had in in the European culture was money that was so highly valued, and so they equated wampum as Indian money. And uh, that's where the problems began, the myth of uh, or the story of the Manhattan. The Isle of Manhattan was bought for a handful of beads. This is a popular story, you know. But it was, that's a real medicine story because it wasn't that. It was the European people thought they were buying the use of the land for their exclusive use by trading or giving the native people these beads. Well, the indigenous people were used to this social contract system that Wathom represents accepted these beads as a token of sacred agreement That they would be friends, they would share the land And live together in harmony In the future, well that misunderstanding Is, is a really root Because then, uh, you know, the European People wanted to put up fences and keep Everybody out, the typical Private property, you know, how they were Brought up, but the native people don't Have private property, all Mother Earth belongs To everybody, so that's where a fundamental Misunderstanding came about Okay, so anyway, I got off On another side track. well um, the main thing about oh the Great Spirit Relay, um, see, uh, Napashi's name, I asked him when I first met him, what does it mean? He said, Well, Napashi means sun bridge, rainbow. And he said, Masao, in English from Japanese, means political man. Well, that was when he was a monk. And later last year, I talked to his daughter and my friend Wave, and they said he also, Napashi also explained him later in his life that it also meant warrior so whatever the word in Japanese is, is has a double meaning of political man and warrior apparently so Napashi, Masao Napashi's name um, literally means or, you know, they put it the other way, Napashi Masao in their naming person, literally means rainbow warrior, rainbow political man and um, then is also the, his first name, Masao has the same sound as the Hopi word The name for the great spirit So You know I explained all this to Nepashi early on And, and uh, so that's Part of the medicine language behind This name of the great spirit Relates, And also what I just mentioned Earlier about the rainbow bridge And the Chumash story uh, That rainbow bridge that sun bridge Also relates to Nepashi Spiritual name So Um Anyway, last year I decided to revive The Great Spirit Relay as a concept When we did the Tree of Peace ceremony Here with to empower a new version Of the Global Peace Pole. The Peace Pole ceremony um, Comes from 2200 years ago Another precedent like the Havim great the peacemaker And this is uh, King Ashoka Conquered the whole of the Indian subcontinent By violence and bloody warfare And uh, he, after one particularly gruesome, he was approached constantly, consistently by the Buddhist monks, but refused uh, them to listen to the message of peace, until after one particularly gruesome battle, and the next morning he's surveying all the carnage, and then his heart is moved, and he starts scratching his head and wondering, and then he accepted an audience to receive the message of peace uh from the Buddhist monks this, uh, What I've been describing In their view of the Dharma About the great law of peace And again Without any violence Without any struggle His mind was ready receptive, He accepted it He changed his whole thinking And uh, renounced violence And uh, became known As a peace emperor And he built many peace monuments Peace pagodas They call them or stupas um, The stupas have a little Tiny bit of the Buddha's, this man that we call, think of as Buddha, but Shakyamuni, a man, uh, who gave the teaching of the state of enlightenment called Buddha, and um, but his remains are, we left the instruction when he died to burn his body and scatter his ashes and enshrine bits of them in these peace pagodas, these peace monuments in the future, to aid in the fulfillment of his prophecy about the pure land, about the golden age to come on the earth. So they, the monks build these stupas peace pagodas enshrining the bits of the Buddha's ashes. Well, Ashoka built some of these and he also built peace pillars or peace poles inscribed with the scriptures the calligraphy that represents this message of peace. So the peace pole ceremony comes from that time 2200 years ago and Reverend Yusen Yamato, the Zen Buddhist monk an Ikayana Buddhist practitioner at the time, brought this ceremony in an ecumenical fashion to the United States the first time in 1978 to the Oregon Rainbow Gathering. And by ecumenical, I mean that uh, up until then, the peace poles that I'd seen um, simply had the Namomyohorengeko calligraphy on it, representing this message of peace from the Buddhist tradition. And uh, Yamato's idea was to put that on it, but also at the Rainbow Gathering to invite Anybody who wanted to, to put their sacred symbol for the message of peace onto the same peace pole, and then that ecumenicalized version will be used in the ceremony, installed in the circle of a prayer, the center of a circle, <coughs> so forth. Well, that was carried up over the years, and I, couldn't, I helped in the first couple of years, and then in the 1980, he couldn't come to the Rainbow Gathering because he was doing the Long Walk for Survival coordinating it across country so i went to the virginia west virginia gathering tried to get the peaceful ceremony nobody was interested couldn't find a log i didn't know to cut a live log or a dead one and uh then the fourth of july i think it was uh so thereafter the wind blew a big storm blew a tree down across from the information center so i cut that into a log for the peaceful but by that time everybody wanted to go and home around the pentagon and Nobody wanted to do the Peace Bowl ceremony, and so I just hid it in the woods and then came back with the end of the Long Walk for Survival and looked for it. It was gone, so we made another one in the middle of the night, November 1st, before the, the 31st of October, before the Long Walk for Survival ended at the White House, Lafayette Park, I introduced the blank Peace pole there, I kept it for an 11-day vigil with Wave and a few other people, Guruji sent one of the monks to put the Namo Myoho calligraphy on it, and uh,
1: Leonard Crowdog
0: Chief Crowdog gave permission for us to have the eleven-day prayer vigil there, night and day, in Lafayette Park, offering it the peaceful for the White House lawn. Well, President Carter didn't accept it. He didn't accept meetings with the Long Walk, longest walk in uh, 1978. But anyway got Peace Pole, which became known as the Rainbow Family Peace Pole for the White House, went to many, many gatherings over the years, uh, many Rainbow gatherings, until a few years ago it was finally old and decrepit and crumbling, and it was burned up, Felipe Chavez, uh, an EP ceremony fire, uh, burned it up in the ceremony. And so I decided to create an open source version of this ecumenical peace pole from Yamato's teaching and uh, first it was called the Rainbow Uprising Peace Pole it had three symbols on it, the nama Oho Renge Kyo, symbol of the great law of peace, and the symbol of the Hopi Declaration of Peace. I tried that for a few years the first one of it got arrested by the Capitol Police at the Occupy National Gathering in 2015 when I tried to offer it for Governor Brown to put up on the lawn of the state capitol and then uh, it didn't seem to have enough energy or power or whatever. So last year, March 11th, here at the Tree of Peace, um, with the more prayer energy and the Jose Munoz and the Art Cisneros and a few of the community members, we had a ceremony and added more symbols. And afterwards, afterwards, Jose gave us the symbol, one of these 25 new symbols from the Mayan calendar that stands for patience and peace. And love. Um, I don't forget the Mayan name for it, but it looks almost like a peace symbol or a Mercedes symbol, and that's one of these five new of the 25 symbols on the sixth sun sacred calendar. And so that one is the sixth symbol on the peace pole. So there's the first three, then there's the the symbol uh, that we created in uh, for the uh, walk. it took place that I organized from California, a few people, and walked from Bethlehem to Jerusalem on Christmas, I think it was 2015. And uh, the Jerusalem Peacemakers people, representing all three faiths of, of Jerusalem, uh, were able to walk from Bethlehem to Jerusalem on Christmas. And uh, for that, uh, Sherwood Acuna and uh, Mayor Hardin helped create a symbol that represents the – three faiths of Jerusalem united in peace. And that's the uh, the fourth symbol on the global peace pole. Then the fifth one is uh, Satya Sai Baba's spiritual unity symbol that represents the spiritual unity of all faiths um, with the center of the lotus uh, peace pole or the lotus stupa um, symbol in the middle. And then the final sixth symbol is that uh, Mayan symbol, calendar symbol uh, representing the six sun calendar and this teaching of the the jade princess that world peace begins in twenty twenty one. Okay, so now I got five minutes left on the hour and I haven't even touched on these schedules. So Gandhi's 150th birthday stimulated me to plan a whole bunch of things, I asked people all around the country to do a walk, a global peace walk on that day, because walking is a prayer for peace is a very powerful kind of prayer that captures people's imagination. And it's just just so powerful to have a walk as a prayer, whether you beat a drum, ring a bell, wave a sign, play an instrument. If you walk with the intent of it as a prayer for peace, it has a very big power. So I started planning the our walk here and asking people around the country, do a peace walk around your city hall, pick a symbolic route, whatever, for Gandhi's 150th birthday, bring out this spiritual revolution, And then I discovered that Leonard Peltier's birthday, 75th birthday, was the 12th of of September. So I quickly shifted into, okay, let's do a prequel. Let's do a warm-up for Gandhi's 150th. Everybody do a walk on Leonard's birthday to get him out of prison, make people aware of our spiritual leader. Yamato recognizes Leonard Peltier as a spiritual leader of the American Peace Movement. So do I. Leonard Pethier's idea that he gave to Yamato when he was in prison and Yamato could visit him with Archie Fire Lamebeer in 1980 with the long walk for survival going across country. And Leonard said, we need something like a global peace forum to bring everybody together. So that's why Yamato's initiated the uh, United Nations 75th anniversary global peace forum, August—I mean, October 24th to 30th in the Santa Fe Convention Center. To implement Leonard Peltier's idea of this Global Peace Forum, his inspiration to try to the idea to bring together the Pope and the Dalai Lama in person together for the first time—that's Yamato's vision. So, over years, I've been trying to figure out how to build up to that. And so, these series of events uh, that I'm going to rattle off now in the last five minutes are leading up to uh, promoting and energizing with the prayer this five nations. 75th anniversary, Global Peace Forum, Santa Fe Convention Center, October 24th to 30th, 2020, next year. So, um, we're having a Global Peace Forum for two hours. we oh, have got 90 seconds left. Okay, the Global Peace Forum for two hours is going to be on September 29th this year at the Baha'i Center in New York and it's going to be promoting the one, the UN 50th, and it's going to be connected all around with on the Internet. Uh, we'll have a session here in Isla Vista that's connected by video, and I'm going to have to leave the description of all these uh, promotional events to writing because I'm told I have 60 seconds left. So in those 60 seconds, I'm going to offer a little prayer, and when they cut me off, then I'm going to move on to the Peace flame. Namu, Yoho, rengi,